as a pastor, I get an opportunity to have a front row seat in many people's lives, and we're entering into the, the marriage, what I call the marriage season, when a lot of people are getting married, and I've had several different people approach me uh, about wanting to get married, and it reminded me of my own marriage story, and actually another funny marriage story uh, about Chuck Swindoll, who's a pastor in Texas. Uh, several years ago, he was pastoring in Fullerton, California, and he was speaking at Moody Bible Institute. And he was speaking about finding God's will in your life and marriage. And he received a note from a woman uh, after he had done speaking, and it said, Dear Pastor Swindoll, uh, I want you to know that I never worry about God supplying a mate for my life. Uh, every night, I take a, men, a pair of men's trousers, and I hang them by my bed. And I pray that God would fill those trousers with a man. And he thought that was pretty funny. You know, and he, so he took that note and he went back to his church and he uh, had a message and he wanted to share this note with the entire church even though it didn't really fit in his message. So he, he decided to share it anyway. And as he shared it with the church, there was a, a family that was present. Actually, it was the, the father and the son. The mother actually had stayed home sick with their daughter or the, their daughter had been sick, so she stayed home that day. And so he read this note, and as he did, he watched the reaction on this father's face and on the young man. And the father just cracked up laughing when he heard this story. But the, the young man was very, very serious as he, he listened to it. Well, then the next week, he received a note from actually the mother of that son. And she said, Pastor Swindoll, I, I, I need to know something. Should I be worried? Uh, because my, every night, my son is praying with a bikini beside his bed. <laughs> It was this idea that he was praying for the spouse. He'd heard this story. And, and I think there's this, this idea of marriage that, we, that this person is going to fulfill all of our lusts, all of our desires, is going to just give us this fulfillment. And we, and we laugh at that. And, but reality is, is marriage is much more, much more than that, though it's a part of it. But it's much more than that. What is marriage? What does it mean to, to truly be married? What does it truly mean to love our spouse? So today, even though it's, mo- it's Mother's Day, I do want to talk to the men um, because I've interacted with a lot of diff- men in the past week in several different circumstances, and, and God really brought this passage to my mind uh, that our, us as men need to know what it means to truly love our wives, no matter what culture they're from. Now, I know that we're all in different places here today. Uh, we have some that are single, uh, happily so. Some are unhappily so. Uh, I know that some are widowed. Uh, there are some who are, are happily married at the, at the end of their, the, at, at the sunset of life. There are some that are newly married or want to be married, and there's others that are barely married. And no matter where you are at today, this truth is some, one that applies to each and every one of us because in, at some point in time, we're going to either be in a marriage situation or we'll know someone who is either a family member or a friend that we're going to be able to give counsel to. And so we need to understand what God says about this issue, especially now, because in our world, it right now is, is floating. It is looking and grasping for roots, for uh, some type of foundation to hold on to, because there's so much confusion now as to not just what is marriage, but what does it mean to be a man or a woman. Um, and we see that, not just in our culture, but I see different people coming in from different cultures and having uh, their own understanding of what their culture teaches about a role. And they step into this culture, and then uh, this, the spouses have conflict over what their roles are and what does it mean to, to be together as husband and wife. And that's why we have to go back to listen and look to what God says about this. Because God's Word transcends culture. It transcends time. 
And it speaks to each one of us in all of our situations, no matter what they might be. So whether you, again, are a single, you're happily married, barely married, you're a widow, whatever your situation that you are in, let's open our hearts and our minds to receive this truth, to see what God has for us, that we might make the changes in our lives necessary to experience this joy, and so that we might be able to give counsel and direction to those in our sphere of influence that are looking for a true north by which to navigate their lives and relationships by. Because generations are coming up, and even as this, the generation ages, by the way, and, and those who are entering into their sunset years, people that once were following Jesus are turning away from Christ in pretty amazing and, I mean, terrifying ways that I'll talk about in just a moment uh, as I look at some different statistics. So no matter what your age is, no matter what your status is, let's see what God has to say about this monumentally important issue today. Let's take a moment to go before him and to ask Him to send forth His Holy Spirit to convict us, to open our hearts to receive this truth of what He has within His Word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, You are God. And Lord, no matter what our world might say, we know that Your Word and Your purposes will endure, will last forever. That this world is but a breath, that today's headlines, scandals, and situations that terrify us, that seem to rock our worlds, that confuse us, that unsettle us, we know will at one time all be forgotten. And we will see the, the reality of your reign. Lord, please help us to live as children of light or children of truth not listening to the lies of our flesh, the lies of the devil, or the lies of this world that seek to worm their way into our lives, that seem to beat at the door of our minds and our spirits to follow. Lord, help us to put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature by taking up our cross and going to your word. And Lord, we pray that your word might do what it is, what it says it will do, and that will change hearts and minds. Let your word blow away the fog of culture that clouds our heart. And may that fresh breeze give us life, that we might receive this truth and tell others about it, so that they might know who you are and delight in you. I ask you to speak to us, bless us, and grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get into our, our text. Uh, Paul is writing this to the church at Ephesus, and there was just as much confusion going on in Paul's time as there is almost in our own time. Though gender roles were pretty traditional, the afflictions and shortcomings of the human condition are no different from those today than in the ancient world. Men and women, husbands and wives need to be reminded again and again how we are to love. Paul begins in verse 25. So look at this with me. Verse 25 in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands. Now, again, I'm going to address the husbands today. Um, Wives will be on a different day. And uh, I I heard one of our elders' wives once say, she goes, why is it on Mother's Day that pastors give a woman a pat on the back and Father's Day then they punch the guys in the stomach? (laughs) And she said, you should give it to us too. I will, but not today. 
all right? I'm not, but I'm not going to give you a pat on the back completely either. I'm coming after our men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. See, the love the, to love your wives is written as a present command for the men, for all that are married. We are commanded to love our wives, but not just love them in an emotional or physical sense. It actually goes deeper than that. We are to love our wives as Jesus loved his church. Now, the question is, is how did Jesus love his church? Well, he willingly gave himself up. He willingly sacrificed himself. Men, this is how we are to love our wives, is we are to love them sacrificially. Sacrificially. Giving up ourselves. That's the first point that I'd like you to write down. We are to love sacrificially. Because the words gave himself up in Greek refers to giving oneself up for, give oneself to death for, or to undergo death for. Now, that automatically flies in the face of what our contemporary culture says about what marriage is. It's to to fulfill you, to make you happy. And if I'm not happy, then this relationship isn't satisfying me. That is not what at all what it's meant traditionally. This is something that is a contemporary way that we've brought it in. Now, I'm not saying love shouldn't be a part of it, but our understanding of what love is has become perverted. We don't understand the sacrificial nature of what it means to be in a married relationship any longer. And here it says to literally give oneself up, to die a death for. You know, one of the great, I've read a lot of books on marriage over the years, and one of the greatest books I've found is a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend you get this book. Uh, in this book, though, they talk, uh, they, I mean, they look at just the practicality of things, but they also look at the deeper spiritual understandings of why God has created an ordained marriage and what the roles mean uh, for each one of us as husbands and wives. But in the book, they write this, Is the purpose of marriage to deny your interests for the good of the family, or is it rather to assert your interests for the fulfillment of yourself? Because again, we have been taught that it's to fulfill all my needs. And that's why when couples come to the altar, they think, oh, this person is going to fulfill my needs. This person is going to complete me. And since it's true, but if you look for that person to fulfill every one of your needs, you're going to find yourself extremely disappointed right away. Because that's not how God intended it. There are certain needs only he can fulfill. But he says this, The Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Jesus gave himself up. He died to himself to save us and make us his. Now we give ourselves up. We die to ourselves, first when we repent and believe the gospel, and later as we submit to his will day by day. Both husbands and wives are called to mutual sacrifice and mutual fulfillment. Now, here's the question. How do we sacrifice ourselves? Let's get practical. Now, originally when I put this message together, I had a certain point, and I crossed it out, but it actually got into your notes. So I want you to look at letter A and put a line through it. Because that's not the point that I want to convey. After looking at it, uh, it sent it in, and it got in there, and it wasn't supposed to be. And this is the point. It, It actually is this. How you sacrifice yourself is putting aside your needs. Putting aside your needs. Now, that doesn't mean that you abandon your needs. 
or you say, I don't get those needs fulfilled in some way. It's you put them aside for the sake of the other person. That's what's being talked about within this passage, is that we're to sacrifice ourselves. Offer Now, what does that mean, to sacrifice ourselves? Well, if we come home and we're both working, don't expect her to wait on you hand and foot. Offer to help with the house. Offer to serve. Offer to find out who she is and what's going on with her, rather than just demanding your own needs are met. Now, notice the second thing that we're commanded to do in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, it was interesting. I'd always had an idea of what this passage meant, but I really parked on it, broke it down, and I I find this verse absolutely fascinating because the, the meaning of the verse and what's being brought out here. Now, the Greek word sanctify means to purify her with expiation, free her from the guilt of sin. It doesn't mean that you are her savior, it means that you are to lead her to follow Jesus. It, it, it's, it, the words here, it means that your job is to lead her in such a way that you are purifying her with truth. Now, here's a question. How do you purify your wife with truth? To purify your wife with truth requires you to put, put God, uh, put yourself in your relationship with God first, meaning that you can't lead her in a relationship with God if you yourself aren't having one. You have to have a relationship with God, and you're to lead her in such a way that God's word is washing over her and helping her not be led into sin, but into righteousness. Now, here's what that means. Let me break that down by by showing you a parenting illustration. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we read this about our our fatherly responsibility with our children. And it says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word provoke is fascinating. It's actually been translated in other versions as exasperate. The word in Greek is actually a compound word. Para is part of it where it's literally come alongside, close up with somebody. And orgizmo, the idea is provoke to anger, meaning you're right up close in their face and you're pushing their buttons. You're doing whatever you can to anger them. Now, how do you do that? This isn't just by yelling. This can be in two different ways because the fall has affected men at a spectrum, just as it affected women. Men can go on the spectrum, okay, either by becoming complete dictators and jerks where they're yelling and barking about commands all the time, or they can become so removed that they don't do anything whatsoever. Now here, though, the idea is you're provoking them by being in their face, by putting unrealistic demands, not caring about who they are, but you were just going right after them to the point where they're like, I can't stand this any longer. And you're provoking them. You are bringing them to anger. You're putting them in a position where they're angry. And this isn't just anger like, I hate you because you won't let me go to the sleepover. It's not that type. Okay? Because there's times your kid's going to get angry. Because I'm going to hear right now, some teens are going to go home and say, Dad, the pastor said you're not to take me off. That's not it at all. It's that you're not putting him in a sustained position of bringing about anger by creating unrealistic or uninvolved expectations or shirking your responsibility. Because you can, you can bring a child to anger by not doing anything either, by the way. Because they're saying, I wish they were there. I wish they were a part of my life. That's anger as well. But here the idea is really getting in their face, coming up on side, and pushing their buttons. Now, as, as fathers, we, have, we can do that, all right? Now, the, he's saying here, your responsibility is not to provoke them for anger. Your responsibility for your wife, though, is not to put her in her position that she will sin. 
So you're to help lead her in a place by following the word of God obediently and helping, not instruct her per se. I mean, you are to help teach and, and grow, but what do you do if your wife has much more, uh, have a, a greater desire for the Bible and knows it better than you? What do you do with that? Well, the idea is that still you are in the position to lead and make sure she is in a place that she doesn't sin against God. That's your job, to help lead her, to help teach her, to put her in that position. And, I, and, and this is why, by the way, and I'm going I'm to get really practical here, you do not bring pornography into the marriage. I've heard couples say, it's okay if we're both a part of it. No, it's not. That's sinful. Because now, by your perversion, and it, and it can start off with men or women, but it usually starts with the men, and I've heard of men do this, I've known of men that have done this, where they say, I'm going to bring this in to spice up our married life and make their wife watch it. Now you're making her sin. You're going the complete opposite of what God told you in his word to do. Because you're leading her to see something that she's not supposed to be seeing, nor are you. Because you're watching another couple engaging in an act that is not of God. That is not keeping the marital bed pure, is what Hebrews chapter 11, actually chapter, where is it at? Chapter 13 tells us. Because we are to purify her with truth and then present her as blameless. Present her as blameless. That's what verse 27 says. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we want to put her and purify her with truth, but we want to present her as blameless. Now, I find this verse, especially from a woman's perspective, an amazing verse. Uh, having been married, I haven't been married a long time, 17 years. Um, my grandparents were married for 72, almost 73 years, so we're puppies. And I know many of you have been married much longer than that. So, uh, but I've, I've learned some things in my, my time of being married. And uh, one of those things is that um, my wife is a little concerned, just I think any woman is, is of getting older. How many of you ladies look in the mirror and go, I have a wrinkle? Have you ever heard your, or men, have you ever heard your wife say that? Men are like, nah, I'm not talking right now. You'll see that. I, I, and I've seen that. You, try to, you don't want to look, you don't want to have spots. You don't want to have wrinkles. You don't have any blemish. When you, go, when you come to church, you want to make sure everything's okay. Or if you have a spot on your dress, you change your dress. Or you change your shirt. And, and you want to look good. You don't want to, you want to use makeup to cover up spots and blemishes, right? Here the idea is that the, the, the husband is to present his wife without a moral spot or defilement, meaning that he is to help keep her from sinning by teaching her and, and exhibiting through example the word of God so that she might not have spot, which is moral defilement, blemish, or wrinkle. That she looks absolutely gorgeous. That's what you're to do is help make your wife look gorgeous. That's your responsibility. As a husband, just like on a wedding day, you see your, your bride, and I remember seeing my wife, she looked absolutely amazing. Beautiful, gorgeous, breathtaking. And I love that, by the way, as a pastor, to stand there with the groom, and when the bride walks in, and to watch the guy's face. Because she looks absolutely gorgeous. She's without spot, without wrinkle, anything. She looks perfect. And that's what he's saying here is, I want you to lead your wife in such a way that she's not going or having to choose sin because of you being an idiot. Let me be real frank with the men. Because right now we have a crisis of men in our churches and in our world. And I'm not talking about being dominant jerks. I'm talking about being the spiritual leaders that are humble and that are leading by love and truth. That's what I'm talking about. 
as we don't see, seeing that in a lot of different places. But that's what God has called us to, to present her as blameless. And it's not, again, not a physical beauty, but a spiritual one. Matter of fact, C.S. Lewis captures this brilliantly in his book called The Great Divorce. And it's not talking about a divorce, uh, like between a husband and wife. It's talking about uh, a divorce between heaven and hell. And he's saying that there's a separation, a chasm between them. And he imagines this, this in-between kind of world. And in this world, this, the character is uh, as a, he's going through this world and seeing these different kind of shadowy figures. And he has this guide who is telling him what these different things mean. And he comes upon this woman who is absolutely mesmerizing. She is brilliant white. And he says, the way that she looked, I couldn't even tell she was dressed or undressed. Her beauty was unbearable to see her. And I had to ask my God, who is this woman? I, I, I can't even begin to look at her. She's so absolutely brilliant and gorgeous. And he goes, is she, basically, is she someone famous? And he goes, no, no, no. She's no one famous. Not in, your, not in that world. Matter of fact, in your world, she was a pretty plain woman. Her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived on Gelder's Green. But in this world, where the reality of her godliness is now seen, it's different. And he actually goes on to say, he goes, and I love what he says there, she is one of the great ones, is what the guide says. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are, twi- are two quite different things. Because see there, it's that the purity of who she is in her essence has come forth, where she's shed this physical body and this spiritual body of who she really is comes out. See, that's the idea and there, there are many that are outwardly beautiful, but inner are ugly. And here it's the idea of cultivating the inner woman and helping her and leading her to a place where she truly becomes more like Jesus. That's what it means within this text. That's, and that's why we have to be careful in how we lead our, 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 our wives, gentlemen. That's why I was talking about pornography, because here's a verse that's for you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. This is what we read. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage be, bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. See, if you do that stuff, you're not just hurting yourself, but you're harming and scaring her in the process. You're perverting your role as the spiritual leader. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. How do you love your own wife? Similarly to the way you love yourself. It's the second point. Similarly to the way you love yourself. How do you love yourself? Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You take care of your body, or at least I hope you do. And I'm not talking about getting regular exercise or eating right. Because remember, in the ancient world, uh, they didn't have a lot of the so-called junk food that we have today. Everything back then was organic. Okay? And uh, you you more, it wasn't the idea. I mean, gluttony, though it was apparent, most people couldn't have that. I mean, you had to work all day just to get a meal at times. And so the idea was is that you took care of it. Here, the word to cherish and nourish, the idea is, is that you make sure that you're feeding your body. And I've never, I don't meet too many men that don't, not feed their bodies. And the other aspect is keeping it warm from the cold is what the ideas are that are being conveyed in the literal sense. But here, in the figurative or spiritual sense in which this is occurring here, is the idea is you are taking care of your body because you know what your body needs. 
So how do we love our wives similarly to ourselves? First of all, it means learning about what her needs are. We're so, as men, we're, we're pretty consumed with our own needs. And it's interesting here that the, script, the scripture, that Paul doesn't say, wives, love your husbands and cherish them as you cherish your own bodies. Because a lot of times what I've noticed is that women are too busy taking care of other things to take care of themselves. Uh, it's an observation. Again, it doesn't play all the way out in every circumstance. But more often than not, that's what I've seen. But men have a tendency, a tendency to take care of themselves. Just like when we're getting ready for a trip, I'm looking at my, my wife. My wife has uh, not always been the best at time. And we're running late one time, and I'm like, come on, let's go. We've had all this time. She goes, you only have to pack for yourself. I have to pack for me and the kids before we leave. So give me some slack. I'm like, you are totally right, because I don't want to have a fight in the car. <laughs> uh, but it's true, right? Ladies, you're too busy taking care of all the other details of different things, and the guys have a tendency to focus on themselves. Let's talk about uh, Melon. We have our own needs, but we need to find out what her needs are. What are her needs emotionally, physically? What are her needs spiritually? What are her needs relationally with you? What are her needs sexually? These are all different parts of the relationship that we need to know and be a student of our wives to understand that. And here, that's what it, the idea is being accomplished. You take care of your own wife. Well, are you now taking care of her? Are you being a student of her? It, it reminds me of another story that Tim Keller tells uh, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, about his wife's relational needs and what she needed him to do uh, to be a part of the family and lead spiritually and just be there for the family. And he said, uh, we were actually getting ready to do a church plant, uh, Redeemer, which is the church that he uh, pastors in Manhattan. And we were going to do this church plant. And I understood after interacting with other church planters that it was going to take me about three years of having my life imbalanced. And what I mean by imbalanced is, is that I would work so many different hours. I could, I could do it probably for three years, but after that it would take a toll on my marriage and it would take a toll on me physically. So I asked my wife, I said, can you give me three years of this and this kind of hectic pace of life? And she said, yes. He goes, okay. The three years came and the three years went, and he didn't change. He kept doing what he was doing, and she kept planning. He said, hey, honey, the three years is up. He said, only just a little bit longer, and it'll be fine. And he kept going, and he kept giving that answer again and again and again. Until one day, he came home, and it was a hot day. He came home, took off his jacket, and the door to the, uh, they have a little bit of a kind of a deck outside, um, and he hears a crash. And he, he runs out there, and he sees his wife sitting down, and she's taking their wedding china saucers, and she's breaking it with a hammer. And he's like, what are you doing? Have you gone nuts? And she's like, you're not listening to me. This is the only way I know how to get your attention. Because you are not listening to the needs of our family. And he he realized he'd not been listening. So he's shocked and he's shaken. He sits down. And for the first time in a long time, he actually listened to what she had to say. And they communicated. And she shared her needs. And he realized that he was addicted to work. And he was going to have to pull back. And he called what she did a godly tantrum. And he asked her afterward, he goes, how, how could you calm down so quickly from a tantrum? She goes, I, I wasn't really in a meltdown mode because uh, we actually had three saucers and those, those three cups that were with him had actually broken. Those were three extra. <laughs> and she goes, I was nervous that you were going to keep going. I was going to have to break the other ones. <laughs> but the idea was getting attention because he wasn't listening to the needs of his wife. And men, we have to be to listen to the needs of our wives when they're talking to us about different things. No matter what they might be, you can't just put them off and say we're going to go on. Here, he's saying that we're to put aside ourselves and listening to the needs 
of our wives. If we're going to listen uh, and ter- cherish our own bodies, we listen to what our own bodies need, then we need to and, and try to find out what our bodies do need and require, then we need to know what our wives require. The second thing that we're to do is make sure that we are looking out for her best interests. Looking out for her best interests. Now, look at this in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Christ looks out for the needs of his bride. Are you looking out for what is best for your wife? See, most people, when looking for a spouse, are looking for a finished statue where they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. Not so you can create the kind of person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. Kathy Keller actually describes this in the same book. She said, when Michelangelo was asked how he carved his magnificent David, his reply is reputed to have been, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. When looking for a marriage partner, each must be able to look inside the other and see what God is doing and be excited about being part of the process of the liberating the emerging new you. We're to help one another to become the best person God desires us to be. We need to look out for what helps them become more like Christ. Now notice the next couple of verses in verse 30 and verse 31. Verse 30 and verse 31. He says here, Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Now, it's fascinating to me that these two verses are coming together. He finishes off uh, the thought that he had already established in verse 29 and 28, and here he brings it home in verse 31. Therefore, a father and, uh, shall, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, notice how verse 30 leads into 31. The two are connected. Um, And why is he bringing this up? Because he wants to show that we are one. We are one body, just as a husband and wife are considered one flesh. We are one body as his people, as his bride, and they are mirrors of one another. What does that mean for us? It means that we need to understand what it means to be living as one. Living as one. You're no longer separate, you are one. What one does affects the other. You're no longer two, but one flesh. No one should be, be invited between the two of you. You are partners. You are to cleave together. Other relationships become secondary because this relationship has become primary. And the idea here is permanence. You have been glued together. So Paul goes on to explain what our physical union represents, and he wants us to see it symbolically. I mean, we've understood that we are to live sacrificially, we're to also uh, and love sacrificially, we're to love them similarly as love ourselves, and also to understand that our love is symbolic. Now, symbols have great meaning. Um, and when I was in India, I discovered this firsthand. Uh, we, I wanted to get a uh, souvenir for my kids, and so my guide took me to this uh, one area of northern India. We were in a place called Nanital, and they had all of these different booths that were open and, and a lot of different souvenirs for tourists. And we walked in, there were some beautiful wood carvings. There was one wood carving that I'd, I'd seen, and he, he picks it up and asks me, he goes, would you like to take it home? And it was a swastika. Okay, now to an American audience, the idea of a swastika is, What? <laughs> And they had all these, the place was filled with swastikas. Now, before you think they're closet Nazis, uh, the swastika in India is actually an ancient symbol that far predates Nazi Germany. And it's an ancient symbol of peace. And it's, it's found throughout India. But I, I laughed at my guide, his name is Kieran, and I said, Kieran, it means something totally different in my culture than it does in yours. And for me to put this up in my living room, it's going to be a huge issue. Because <laughs> people aren't going to understand the meaning of it. 
Now, there are certain symbols that, that we have that, are, that God has given us that are embedded within our world. The rainbow does not mean sexual freedom, does not what the original intent is. The rainbow is that God wouldn't flood the earth because of man's wickedness. It's a symbol that God himself created. The cross is a great symbol. It's a symbol of God's love for us. But one of the greatest symbols is one that is found within creation itself that precedes the cross and precedes the rainbow, and that's marriage. Marriage is a symbol of Christ's love for his church, for his people. That's what God created it to be. And it has this, I mean, it has so many, so much an amazing meaning that we have perverted it and lost the symbol that it points to. Look at verse 32. He says this mystery, this mystery and this, this profound is what the Greek, the Greek word is. It's profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, notice he's saying that he, he just talked about the union of a husband and wife in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers not to just the husband and wife here, but it points to a greater, greater truth, a picture of Christ and his church. And I find the word that's funny. It's, he says, the mystery is profound. The word for profound there is mega, mega. Uh, which means of great importance, to be esteemed highly, and it's of great weight. And what he's giving us here is a picture that, uh, that we're to look at. It's a picture for us to look at, to understand. It's a picture of Jesus' love for his church. That's why it is to be sacrificial in nature. That's why it's to be permanent. Jesus doesn't love his people one minute and then hate him the next. He doesn't see his people as being so screwed up that he wants out. He holds on. He wants unbelievers to see God's love for us in our marriages. But unfortunately, that's not what has happened. We're too selfish and have no idea what it means to sacrifice. We have marred the picture so that it turns people off to Jesus. And I've seen some men who have truly abused their position. And again, the fall affects men in different ways. Men range from dictators to doormats. And we're to see Christ as a corrective no matter where we find ourselves in order we might display Christ to our family and those around us. But he's also given us in this picture here is a pattern to follow. And this is speaking to our current generation. Notice the order. You leave your father and mother and then come together sexually. Living together first is not God's intention. Sleeping together before marriage is not God's intention. You leave and then cleave, becoming a new family, living as one. Not you going out and doing whatever you want apart from them, but living as partners. This means you share things together. You open up together. You aren't keeping secrets. You don't try to, to punish each other. We had a, we had a man here uh, at the church several years ago, um, and uh, he, uh, his, after the service was over, he would be so frustrated with his wife that she would want to stay and talk to people that he would get in the car and he would stew and wait. And finally, if she didn't come within a certain amount of time, he left, he, he would drive away. And he'd say, I'm going to make her walk home. I'm going to teach her a lesson. And I looked at him and I'm like, you're an idiot. You're dumb. That's not what your job is to do, to be a corrective, to punish your wife. Ended up, they it unfortunately went to divorce because he just was not loving his wife the way that he was supposed to. He was not being kind. He was not even compassionate. He, he would actually cite the scriptures and demand her submission, but he wouldn't give and sacrifice his own self. And there are some that have abused the word of God for their own benefit. And that's why we have to be very careful in understanding and applying the word uh, and understand that there is, though, a pattern for us to follow and so people say, well, people try to buck the word all the time, and they bear the consequence of their actions. I was speaking just to a gentleman yesterday. We were talking uh, about sin in his own past and things that he had done. And he said, God doesn't mess around with this. 
I bear in my life the scars of choosing differently than what God had told me to do. I decided I wanted to do my own way, that I didn't care. And he said, I bear the scars of my soul. Some of you here might say the same thing. Because you have chosen to do it differently than what God wanted. But God was merciful and brought you back. And we have to keep this in line. And young people, let me tell you right now, for those who are going off and you're not married yet, let me tell you right now, please follow this. I'm not saying that life is going to go perfectly if you do. Because uh, there are some that have said that, that if you do this, A plus B is C, and God's going to, boom, he's going to bless you, and you're not going to have struggles. That's not it at all. You're still going to have struggles, okay? But if you will have less struggles, hopefully, by God's grace, rather than you departing from what this says, you are, you are going to hurt yourself in the long run and hurt those people around you if you buck this, this teaching. God has given us a definite pattern to follow, and our world is bucking and roaring against it. And I hear people all the time, uh, just as I cited a few weeks, weeks ago, and Keller actually talks about when I hear people say today, we don't need a piece of paper to be married. Yes, you absolutely do. Absolutely do. I say, what do you mean by that? I said, I, this is what I mean. When I hear people say, I don't need a piece of paper to be married. We can love one another. No, what you're really saying is this. Let me give you the, the biblical perspective. You're saying that I don't love you enough to cut off all my other options. I don't love you enough that I'm keeping a way out of this in case it doesn't work out the way that I want it to. This is hard. This is not easy. But this is what God's truth says. When we place ourselves under it, I place myself under it. It scares me because I know what it says. So I don't do this as, please don't think I'm being a jerk, please. I'm doing this because I care. I care. And I don't want to see you guys fight destruction in your own lives. I want to see you enjoy what God has as we seek to obey him. And I want to see Christ being exhibited in your life by your obedience. Because remember, obedience isn't always easy. Sometimes it's in our obedience that, the, the, remember, the, the, the fragrance of Christ comes out because the times are hard. And that can be really seen in marriage. Really seen in marriage. Because really, you're showing the love of Christ there is definitely a pattern here to follow, to leave and cleave, to join together. Now look at, look at verse 33 with me. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul ends his admonition with a principle for us to apply. Men, you are to love your wife as you love yourself. Now apparently we don't have a hard time taking care of ourselves. No matter that, the same admonition is not here for the ladies because we, again, as I shared earlier, perhaps we as men have a tendency to take care of ourselves only, but our wives have to take care of everyone else. But there is a principle for us here. Men, love your wives as you love yourselves. Ladies, respect your husbands. Men will do anything for respect. And if he doesn't get it from his wife, it is crushing. Because that's another thing with marriage. When you say and stand at the altar, you're basically saying, I'm giving you the power to destroy me to make me or destroy me. It's true. And I don't, we don't like to think that way. It kind of dampens the whole marriage ceremony. But it's true. To help make me into the person you want me to be or you can help destroy me. But that's what God wants. Not that he wants to destroy you. He wants you to choose to mutual sacrifice for mutual fulfillment for the glory of his name. So there's a, a serious principle for us to apply. What is for marriage for? It's for helping each other to become our future glory selves. 
the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look toward is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. Now, some of you are here today almost the finish line, meaning you're at the finish line of life. Some of you are, if you, if you feel like you're at the finish line of your marriage, I hope that's not the case. But some of you are at the finish line of life, and you say, what do I take away from this? I want you to be faithful until the end. I shared earlier, one of the most disturbing statistics to me for those who are cohabitating, the largest rise are for those that are in the senior category. I'm not talking about seniors in high school. I'm talking about those who are in the senior age bracket. Um, And you're seeing them in large amounts, in essence, turning away from the word of God and saying, we're going to do this right at the end of our lives. That's crushing to me. That right before you enter into the presence of the glorious sun, as the sun's setting on your life, you choose to be disobedient right before the end. Don't continue to fight, fight, until the very end with Jesus. Not fight with Jesus, but I'm saying be with Jesus. Fight until the very end. Hold on. For those that are, are single, ladies especially, do not compromise, compromise what you're seeking for a man. I see so many different women are looking for good men, and there are good men out there. Uh, but don't compromise. And look for guys that are going to be leading you into sin. Men uh, that are single, be this type of man. Young men, be this type of man. For those who are, 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 are single and happily so, teach this to your friends. Share this with them. For those that are widows or are widowed, hold on and share this with the next generation. Pray this for your grandchildren, for your nieces and nephews, those in your sphere of influence. Please do so. And for those that are barely, mar- barely married, don't give in. Don't give up. Hold on. Hold on. You know, statistics have shown, no matter how much a marriage has gone through, that if they hold on, that it will get better. It will. It shows it over and over and over again. And people don't understand the fallout of what happens, by the way, if a divorce does occur. Um, they're showing now even more and more than it's ever been known before, that it, it, though it seems like it doesn't affect, it affects generations infects people for years and years and years. And though you might look at the temporal and go, oh, they're fine, they'll bounce back, they're kids. They're going to bear the scars on their soul because of the choices that we make. And you're like, well, that's a heavy task. That's what parenting and being a husband and a wife is about. That's what God has ordained it to be. It's not a light thing. This is a heavy thing. That's why, again, it's a profound mystery because it's a symbol of Christ's love for his church. Now, I know some of you are, you're like the one, you're the one that's trying, and your spouse is the one that's not. Continue to pray and love them and be faithful. As far as it depends on you, and you cultivate your relationship with God, and if you find your spouse is being disobedient in this arena, give them over to God. Don't be the one that you have to punish them. You be, you focus on God, you do what you're supposed to for God, you love them and respect the position that they're in, but you continue to love God. And, 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 and seek some help. Seek some counsel if necessary. Whatever you need to do, let's do this together. And again, this message has come out of a need because of se- several situations that I've interacted with in the past week in our own midst. Okay? And I don't say this because of condemnation, but because I want your salvation. And I want to see you increase in joy and be the people that God wants you to be. Is that what we want? be who God wants us to be, to truly be children of the cross. Uh, as I conclude this message, I, I, I received an email. I always get emails. I received this email this past week about a man who hadn't been at church for a little while. 
And he said, uh, Pastor, uh, I have to tell you something why I haven't been there. I said, why? He goes, you know, no one reached out to me. I've been gone so many weeks, no one said boo. Uh, you yourself are the first person to do it, but no one else has. He goes, I hear your people talk about community. I hear you talk about it, and I appreciate your pleadings for it, but your people aren't doing it. Now, slightly offended by that, because I think there are some that are. I think he just didn't see that. I think there are people that are growing in the relationship with Jesus. But one of the biggest critiques of us as a church, and not just talking about us as an individual church, but us as a society, is that we acknowledge Jesus with our lips and we deny him in our life choices. And we are Christians in the room and unbelievers outside of the room. And that's not what God wants. God wants to be Lord and sovereign over every single thread and aspect of our lives. Every single part of it. Is he the Lord of your life? Men, can you see that by the love that you have for your wife? You say he's your Lord. Can you see that in your marriage? Can you see that? Can, Christ, can people see Christ in your married life? Can they see him in all the other aspects of your life? But specifically there. Now, ladies, again, I've let you off today because it's Mother's Day. But you have a responsibility too, and here it's to respect your husband. Even if he may not be worthy of respect, you to respect his position. That's hard to do. Uh, I've talked with my wife about that several different times, trying to get a woman's perspective on that. But it's what we are called to do. She said the same thing. This is what we are called to do. It's God is glorified within us in that. Now, I've come to the end of the message. I think love is something that each one of us wants. Everyone wants to be loved, to love and be loved in the reality of who we are. But for us to truly understand that, we have to remove and try to redirect our understanding of what love is because the world has cultivated an understanding of love that is far different than the love that is exhibited, exhibited, demonstrated, and commanded within the Scripture. That's the love that we are to find and pursue. Now, some of us in this room have not done that. Let me tell you, God's grace is sufficient for you, that He is a forgiver of sin, And you may not be able to change the past, but you can change the future by being obedient to what God has you to do. So let's be obedient together. Uh, Let's let's lay our hearts before God. Let's ask him to give us the power to be the people he wants us to be. Let's let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, I hurt right now for so many marriages that I've seen that are hurting. Lord, I know that there are some that are thriving and they're happy and they're enjoying one another and they're doing what, everything that you have laid out within your word. And Lord, I pray that they might continue to grow on and you might increase their ministry. But for those marriages that are limping along and are struggling, I pray, Lord, that you give them a lifeline. Show them the reality of your word. Show them your spirit. Show them that you are the powerful God that, and with you there is forgiveness. Uh, with you there is hope. With you there is grace, with you there is mercy, and that you can make a way where there is no other way. Lord, for those spouses that are holding on to their sin, Lord, I pray that you place your spirit upon them and you might grant them the repentance that leads to life and you may not destroy them uh, before they are repentant. Lord, bring them back to you because we know that you don't delight in the perishing of anybody. Just as I was sharing, Lord, with one of your servants this past week and how he admitted to his own infidelity years ago, and how he was convinced that you were going to take him out. Lord, I pray 
that is not the case for those that are holding on to their sin, that are not repentant before you. Lord, I pray that you draw them back by your grace. I pray that you help us to, to find the roles that you have for us, that we might enter into them no matter what our culture, no matter what our experiences have been in life, uh, that we might truly be the people you want us to be. And Lord, let your name be upon our lips and in our marriages so that people might see you in us, whether we're at work, whether we're at play, whether we're at church, or whether we're at home alone. Uh, may your name be seen powerfully within our lives. So Lord, glorify your name. Touch us, grow us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.